Amen. So this morning, I've already put the cards on the table. I, I want to talk to you about guilt. Um, we, we've been talking about soul maps for the past few weeks. This is episode six of Soul Maps. We're getting into the Psalms to discover some kind of a, a map, some kind of a way forward for discerning and understanding the God-given emotions that we have. Uh, we've talked about this, we've laid some groundwork before, but just to kind of recap, emotions are things that we, we need to see and value for what they are, that they are indicators. You know, if you have an, an indicator, like a check engine light that comes on, up on your car, it's good to pay attention to that, am I right? It's good to see that for what it is, recognize that you should do something about it, recognize that it's telling you something that's important. So we need to recognize it. You don't ignore a check engine light. I was a teenager once, and I ignored a check engine light on my car, and it was a terrible mistake. It cost me thousands of dollars. Okay, so it's the same with our emotions. If we choose to ignore the things that we're feeling within us that are indicators that are supposed to point us in a direction, if we ignore our emotions, then we're doomed to have some pretty costly mistakes that come up in life. But just like we, we don't ignore them, we also don't yield completely to them. Again, you don't look at the check engine light on your car and say, well, God just wills for me to have a broken car. So that's that. I'm just, I've got a broken car. No, you, you recognize it for what it is and you submit it to the Lord. In the case of a car, you would submit it to a mechanic. Say, this thing is broken, it needs fixing. I'm going to put it in your hands and see what you can do with it. So it's the same with our emotions. We recognize for what's going on and we submit those things to the Lord. We don't yield to them, but we don't ignore them. We've got to submit those things to the Lord. And so we've been talking about that. Is everything okay over there, Dan? Okay, amen. <laughs> Did anybody feel an emotion of fear just now? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, we, we submit these emotions to the Lord. We don't yield to them. We submit them to God. We've been talking about different emotions, and, and today I want to talk about guilt. Guilt, I believe, is, is a common emotion among humans. Raise your hand if you've ever felt guilty about something before. It's that feeling, you know, a couple weeks ago we talked about grief. Grief, as an indicator, as an emotional indicator, we said that grief is an indication that things are not as they should be in the world. Things are not right. And we talked about bringing that emotion to the Lord. Well, if grief is an indicator that things aren't right in the world, guilt is that similar kind of indicator for ourselves as individuals. Guilt says, okay, there's something that's not right within me. Something that's going on that I've done, that I've done somebody wrong, that I've messed something up, and, and I need to pay attention to that and submit that even to the Lord. I know everybody's got their own stories about guilt, but one of my earliest that I can remember is, you know, my parents growing up, they had a pretty nice, I think it was beautiful. It was especially beautiful when I got done with it, but we'll get into that. A beautiful bookcase uh, in our house that was like a nice dark wood. And I realized one day as a child that if I got like a, a pin or something sharp and started to make markings on it, I noticed that it would like show up in green. Like something about the wood, it was, it was green. And so I did this really cool thing where I put my name, I, I knew how to spell my name, Micah, with a lightning bolt underneath it. And it was one of the coolest things I'd ever done. But 
But it was also something that I shouldn't have done. I had done something wrong. I had messed up. I had done wrong by my parents, by this beautiful thing that was in our house. And, and so I got called to the carpet on it. I got uh, called in my, by my parents. And uh, whenever they asked me who had done it, of course it wasn't me. It had to have been someone else who had done Micah with a lightning bolt underneath. But I was guilty. And, and we'll talk here in a second about the difference between guilt and shame uh, and how important that is, but but I was guilty in that moment. I uh, and I've had unfortunately many moments since then where I've felt that same feeling inside that I've done something wrong, and I should probably make this right. I've messed up, and either I need to fix it or I need to turn my life over to somebody who can when it's too big for me to fix. And so, yeah, that might have been one of my earliest feelings with guilt, but there have been plenty since then. And what I want to, to submit to you today, actually, you know, I, I don't want to submit to it, that to you just yet. First, let's, uh, let's look at the Psalms, because that's the point of all of this. Whenever we're talking about soul maps, we're talking about going to the book of Psalms, looking at these things, there's every range of human emotion expressed and submitted to God within the Psalms. And so if you've ever felt yourself an emotional wreck, uh, just up and down and high and low, it's good to go to the Psalms if you want to know how to submit that to the Lord. It's good to go to the Psalms. So uh, we're going to be this morning in Psalm 51. Psalm 5.1, this is a Psalm of David. And one thing that this Psalm says is it says that this is a Psalm of David whenever he was called to the carpet like I was with my parents. David was called to the carpet by the prophet Nathan for something that he had done. And if you want backstory on what David had done, maybe you know the story, but if you want to go and read 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12, tell this story of what David had done. I'll give you a Cliff Notes version. So the Cliff Notes of this story is that David, whenever the nation of Israel was out fighting wars and he as a king should have been out with them, David was at home, not where he should have been. And from his home, he saw a beautiful woman bathing on her rooftop. Her name was Bathsheba. I don't think it was because she was taking a bath, but there could be something there. I don't know. But her name was Bathsheba. Uh, He saw her, thought she was really beautiful. And as the king, he said, somebody take that woman to me. He committed adultery with her. She became pregnant. He was like, man, I need to cover this thing up. So he took uh, Bathsheba's husband, who was out fighting the battle like David should have been. He asked him to come home, hoping that he would get with his wife and that that would be the answer to everyone's question about the baby, and that would cover things up pretty well. Well, Uriah, uh, he he didn't go for that. He said, no, I should be out on the battlefield with my people. I'm not going to go have sex with my wife because my heart's with the people of Israel and the fighting like I should be. So David was like, man, that did not work. So what David did, his next solution, anybody ever felt guilty and you just come up with solution after solution of how to make this work and fit and fix? Yeah, guilty, Uh, guilty. So David's next solution, his next bright idea was, okay, we're going to kill this guy. So he sends orders to the guy at the head of the army. He says, hey, go to the deepest, like, hardest part where the battle is like thickest. Put Uriah right there and then make everybody else leave and let me know whenever the deed is done. So he does that and then the the prophet Nathan comes to David and this is funny. 
but kind of funny. The prophet Nathan goes to David and he tells him a story about another guy. He says, so there's this other guy, really powerful, had everything that he needed, abundance as much as he could ever ask for. And then there was another guy who was poor, only had a little bit of stuff. And then this big powerful guy came and took the little that this other guy had. And David gets outraged. David says, well, we need to bring some justice to this man. This is terrible. He's got to pay for this. And Nathan says, newsflash, it's you. You're the one who did this. Uh, God is not pleased with this. And David, in that moment, he comes to a heart of repentance and brokenness before the Lord. And so that is the situation that David is in. Oh, and the, the child that was conceived with Bathsheba in that sin died. And so he mourns even the loss of that child. And so there's a lot of grief even that comes in with this guilt. But that's where David finds himself when he is writing this psalm, Psalm 51. And so there's a lot of guilt that David has in his heart whenever he comes to the Lord in this way. And so we, as we approach this soul map, Psalm 51, I want you to think about a time, maybe it's now, maybe it's in the past, where you felt truly guilty about something, truly like you know you've done wrong, you need to make it right. And what is your prayer like in that moment? What do you say to God? What do you say to the people around you? What do you say to yourself? What is your prayer? What's, your, what's the cry of your heart in that moment? Because maybe you found yourself in a really guilty situation and you found yourself not knowing exactly what to do about it. Not knowing how to pray. Not knowing if God is going to accept my, my repentance or, or, or what's going to happen. Well, this could maybe be a good soul map for you. Something to, to approach the Lord with in a prayer for your life uh, according to that guilt. So Psalm 51 I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, and if you want to follow along in anything, my notes are up on the, the app, so you can find those there as well. But let's, let's read what David has to say to the Lord here. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. That's Psalm 51. So here you see David bring his guilt before the Lord. He lays it bare in front of him. Says, I, I know my transgressions. I, my sin is ever before me, O oh God. And only you can be the one to cleanse me. He asks God to purge him with hyssop, to cleanse him, to create in him a clean heart. He puts it before the Lord. And so it's, it's with this psalm, it's with this prayer that we see from David that I want to submit to you, I want to suggest to us as a church that guilt as an emotion, guilt can be a very, very good thing for the Christian. For a Christian believer, somebody who's put their faith in God, guilt can be a good thing. And I know that can sound a little bit strange because guilt is one of those things that, you know, it doesn't feel good. We don't need to, to feel like our identity is messed up by the things that we have done. And so whenever I say that guilt can be a good thing, the first thing I want us to do is I want us to dissect a little bit of a difference between a couple words, and that's guilt and shame. Because guilt, I truly believe, can be a good thing if we submit it to the Lord. Again, like any emotion, if we submit that thing to the Lord and offer it to Him in humility to see what He does with it, guilt can be a good thing. But before we even talk about that, I want to dissect a little bit guilt and shame. Because shame, I believe, is never a good thing for the believer. And here's, here's what I mean. If I'm talking about a difference between guilt and shame, there are, there are a few things. And for, Let's first put it like this. Guilt, guilt would say, I have done something wrong. I've messed up. I've done something wrong. Shame, on the other hand, would say, I am a mess up. Shame is more about your identity. Guilt is a feeling that you feel that's remorse for something that you've done that you know needs to be made right. Shame takes very personally whatever that thing is that you've done and makes it a part of who you are. Makes it a part of your identity. So the difference between guilt and shame then would be guilt says, I've lied and I need to make this right. Shame says, I am a liar. That's who I am, and it's something that I, I, I can't change, can't fix, and this is who I am. Is that making sense? So shame is something that we absolutely need to pray against, run from, receive healing from the Lord on. We don't need shame as believers, but guilt and remorse for wrongdoing actually can be a very beautiful and good thing for us as Christians. Guilt and shame, they need to be separated here. And honestly, I want to go into this a little bit further because shame is such a tool of the enemy that the enemy has used and tried to, to bring God's people down from the very beginning. He introduced shame to try to, to take us down. Because again, shame attacks your identity. And your identity in Christ and in God, your creator, your identity is the one thing that the enemy has hated since day one about humanity. 
Because if we go back to the book of Genesis, in the book of Genesis 1, uh, verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image. God says, I, the thing about all these other creations, he, he made the, the skies, he made the heavens, he made the earth, he made the, the fish and the creatures that inhabit the earth. He made every single thing and he said it was good. But then he made man, us, humanity, in his image. And he said, this is very good. We are a prized possession of God's creation. And we have this thing that the enemy, Satan, is jealous of, that he hates, that is a part of the image of God that he is against. He is anti-God. And so whenever he sees that image of God that's on the inside of us, that's the very thing that the enemy would want to attack. And that's the very thing he has tried to attack from day one. It's that image of God that's on the inside of us that is a part of our identity that's not dependent on what we've done, haven't done, where we were born, who we were born to, but it's a part of God's fingerprint on the inside of us that is our identity. That's what the enemy tried to attack from the beginning. And so shame comes against our identity. Shame tells you that you are the sin that you've committed. Shame tells you that you are a failure, that you are a mess up, that you never will have a chance for a brighter future, that you never will be able to look like your father God. That's what shame would tell us. Guilt is a different story. And it goes all the way even back to the garden, this image of God that the enemy would want to twist even a good thing, a good emotion that would point us to God like guilt that would cause us to run to the person who can heal us. He twists that thing, turns it into shame that's an attack on our identity. And so here's what shame looked like in the garden. If you go to Genesis verse 3, or Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, you see shame leads to hiding. Shame makes us want to hide. In Genesis 3, 8 to 10, this is uh, soon after uh, humanity had fallen. They had done what the Lord told them not to do. And rather than feel guilty and go to the Lord in that guilt and say, God, I'm sorry, here's what we've done. Instead, they feel shame from the enemy. And in verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Shame causes us to hide. Shame makes you hide from the very person that could fix the thing that's messed up. Again, guilt tells us that there's something wrong on the inside of us that needs to be fixed. Shame would cause you to hide from the very person that can fix that thing. And so whenever I say guilt can be a good thing, I'm not talking about shame here. Shame causes us to hide and that's not good. This is a distortion of, of our identity. You know, uh, here in Psalm 51, verse 11, David says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. In the middle of this guilt and pain, David says, don't, don't take me away from your presence. I need to be in your presence, God. I need this presence of yours. I do not want to hide. It's my sin is before you. It's in front of you. It's laid bare. But God, I don't want to be away from your presence. Adam and Eve here, feeling the shame of the enemy, they had chosen to try to cover themselves and hide, be away from the presence of God. So that's not what we're talking about here. So shame leads to hiding. Shame also leads to blame. 
whenever we've taken something, whenever we've taken a sin on and we've called it our identity, it leads us to try to blame because we feel like if somebody talks about the sin in our lives, they're actually talking about us. And so we want to shift that as much as possible. Blame somebody else. The very next verse is again in Genesis 3. If you read on, verse 11, he said to them, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. You know, this whole, the fact that they ate it was kind of an afterthought. It was this woman that you gave me, and I ate it. It was this serpent, and I ate it. There's blame immediately going on here. I don't want to get too far into this story, but this story of David the king, who whenever he was confronted with his sin, how he responded, how he went to the Lord in repentance and wrote this down, it mirrors really perfectly with a story about Psalm, uh, Saul, I'm sorry, Saul, another king who was confronted with sin. God told him to go and conquer these people, to leave no one alive, to take everything. And Saul did that a little bit, but he didn't obey orders exactly. And whenever he was confronted by a prophet about his sin, he shifted blame to the people around him. He said, oh, it was, it was these soldiers that, that they did what they did. And, and he tried to hide it, cover it up with sacrifices. David here, he says, I'm not going to try to give you any kind of sacrifice like some big fattened ram or some uh, big animal sacrifice. There's no sacrifices like that that you're going to be pleased with that can hide my sin right now. The sacrifice that I'm going to give to you, Lord, is a broken and contrite heart. My sacrifice to you right now is a broken heart in front of you because I know that I've done wrong. A spirit of humility to submit to you and say, I'm guilty. I've messed up. I need you. So I'm not talking here about shame. Shame wants to come at our identity. Shame wants to tell us that we are the sin we've committed. Guilt says we've committed a sin. We've done wrong. We've messed up. Now what are we going to do about it? And what David does about it here in Psalm 51 is he submits that thing to the Lord. It's in front of you, God. Renew a right spirit within me. Fix me because I can't fix myself. Take, don't take me out of your presence. Let me always be in your presence. And here's why I believe that guilt, this emotion that we feel when we know that we've done something wrong, guilt can be a good thing for us as Christians because it is countercultural to to what we see in the world today. Did y'all know that we live in a shame culture? We live in a shame culture. What you see in the media and at culture in large in culture at large is you see a lot of blaming because there's shame. Everybody's dealing with and operating out of a place of shame. There's a lot of blaming going on. Well, this country's going to hell in a handbasket because of the liberals. Well, no, it's because of the conservatives. Blame both sides. I know that's a pretty simple way of looking at it, but there's, you can look at it in detail. There's blame. Blame going on all the time. There's no opportunity for the antidote. And the antidote, I believe, that guilt drives us to that we have as Christians is confession and repentance. 
what guilt as an emotion should be driving us to, and even what we see in this psalm, is confession and repentance. And I believe that we as a church need to be a, a culture. We need to be a culture here that is so conducive to confession and repentance. I want us to have that kind of environment. I want us to have that kind of ecosystem. You know, there are certain ecosystems where certain things thrive and other things don't. In a desert, there's, there's certain things, like maybe in an oasis, certain things that thrive and develop, certain animals that can live off that, and certain things that don't. Depends on the ecosystem. I want this church to be an ecosystem where confession thrives and is accepted and welcomed and we experience the love and forgiveness of our Savior in and, uh, in and among one another. I want our ecosystem and environment to be one where we can repent. Again, we live in a shame culture. Repentance does not happen in our culture at the national level. Repentance does not happen on Facebook. Who do you see on Facebook that's like, you know, I had an opinion earlier this week and I've since heard other things and God's worked on my heart and now I have a different opinion. No. No. You see double downs on Facebook. You see blaming on Facebook. You see hiding behind some political party because, oh, well, this is their opinion. I'm just going to spout that that's what my opinion is. I'm just going to hide behind that. There's no room for someone to have a certain thought to repent and say, well, maybe I saw things a little bit differently and now I'm seeing them differently now. I repent and people around them say, oh, praise God. Thank you for repenting. This is great. We welcome you. No. You say, oh, once a bigot, always a bigot. Even if you said it way back whenever you were in the third grade and didn't know any better, you're just a terrible person. There's no room for repentance. There's no room for repentance in our culture. Dear God, please let there be room for repentance in this church. I pray that whenever we see one another, when we look at one another, we see, one, the face of someone who has messed up just like we've messed up, but two, we see this, the face of someone who is fashioned, molded in the image of their creator and there's something worth redeeming there that whenever they repent, we can forgive and we can love and we can extend mercy like our God extends mercy. We live in a culture of shame that has no room for confession and no room for repentance. But Jesus, our God, our Savior, our King, He's given us these tools that are healing for the soul. Have you, ever, have you ever had something that was just eating away at you, something you've messed up, you did wrong, and you just needed to, to say something to somebody, and you finally tell somebody, listen, this is what I did. It was terrible. I know it was wrong, but this is what I did. And they tell you that you're not a crazy, terrible person that's going to hell in a handbasket. They tell you that they forgive you and that they love you and that you're still made in the image of God, and that you can still reflect His glory, and that there's still beauty in you? Have you ever had that moment? I've had the, that moment, and I'm so thankful for that. You know, you see that, I know not everybody's married here, but man, in a, in a marriage, it's such a beautiful thing to be able to get, get to go to your spouse and say, I've done wrong, I've messed up, I'm sorry, and for them to forgive you. For there to be a place for confession and repentance. Man, I've, I've grown closer to Callie, not through the wonderful, awesome things that I've ever done to her, 
But I've grown closer to Callie through the times whenever I've done her wrong, I've messed up and I've gone to her and said, I've messed up and she's forgiven me for it. We grow stronger through those moments than through all of the wonderful, beautiful notes that I've ever written to her. Maybe you can attest to that in your marriage as well or any other relationship. So whenever we mess up, whenever we fail, whenever we fall and we feel guilty and that guilt pushes us towards confession, repentance, and we receive forgiveness from one another and experience the forgiveness of the Father that we actually grow closer and our relationships are forged in that. So this emotion, guilt, can be a very beautiful and good thing if it pushes us to confession and repentance. And so confession, just a few verses I want to share with you from the New Testament. In James 5, verse 16, this is a beautiful thing. He says, therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We experience healing in confession. Whenever we confess our sins one to another, pray for one another, we experience God's healing. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You know, you can't get prayer from somebody if you don't tell them what you need prayer for. You can't get prayer. You can't receive forgiveness if you're not telling somebody what you've done and what's, what's going on in your life and what you need. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's this element here of confession, one of confessing one to another. When we've done each other wrong, and we know that we need to fix this, we, we, we need to confess our sins one to another, receive prayer and healing in that. And then there's also this element of confession to the Lord. This is what David is, he's laying his heart out to God. He's saying, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. I would I mean, I'm tempted to disagree with David on that. I'm like, it seems like you sinned against Uriah at least a little bit. <laughs> That's just me. But, but in this moment of confession, he's going to God about it. He's saying, yeah, okay, maybe I've done all these people wrong, but God, this is about me and you. I know that I've done you wrong here. I know that I've failed even in the eyes of my creator. Against you and you alone I have sinned. And he confesses those things to the Lord. And you know what? Our Lord and God is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We can't cleanse ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. Shame would try to get you to, to think that. Oh, you're just a, a mess up, and if you tell anybody else, then they're going to think worse of you, and they're going to hate you, so just figure it out on your own. Just grin and bear it. Take that thing to your grave. That's what shame wants us to do, because it wants to eat away at our souls. But guilt would point us to confession and repentance. And it's a healing, healing thing. You know, in talking about repentance, this is repentance. Again, like I said, it doesn't exist in our culture right now. In our culture at large, repentance might as well be a four-letter word. Nobody, nobody wants to do it because nobody wants to forgive either. Again, sins and wrongs that you've done Back when you were a teenager, those are things that now we want to hold against one another and crucify people over in the here and now. Repentance, it's not allowed. If you've said something on Facebook, if you've voiced an opinion, there's no room for change. 
But you know what? Jesus, whenever he preached the, if you look in, in Matthew, when Jesus first started preaching the kingdom of God, the first thing he said, he said he went and started preaching the gospel saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Y'all, this is a beautiful thing. God, the fact that God gives us repentance, repentance is a tool in the kingdom. Repentance is beautiful. It's, it's this icky, nasty word that just soothes out of our mouths in this culture. But in the eyes of God, this is a beautiful, wonderful, soul-lightening thing. And Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, not because he was trying to condemn people, bring people down, but because he knew there is room for you to change your mind in my kingdom. You need to change your mind. You need to be born again. You need to see things in a different way. You need to ask for forgiveness. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand because when you repent, you can enter into this kingdom. And you know what? Repentance is a beautiful thing for us as Christians, not just because it got us into the kingdom, but because it is a tool that needs to carry us throughout our experience in this kingdom. Did you know that his disciples, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. He said, blessed are you, Simon Peter, because God revealed this to you. Did you know that Simon Peter needed repentance the very next paragraph? Jesus says, blessed are you. God revealed this to you. The next paragraph, he's saying, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter, he had this revelation of who God is. He, he had entered into the kingdom. He had repented. He had made Jesus the Lord of his life. But he didn't see it correctly still. There was still some things that needed to be adjusted up here in the head. I'd still need those things adjusted, okay? So I still need to be ready to repent. But he needed some things adjusted because the very next paragraph, he said, Jesus... Far be it from you to go and die like you're saying that you're going to do. I just said that you're the king of the universe. I just said that you're the Messiah. You can't go and die. He was wrong. Jesus had to go and die. Jesus knew that. And so he said, get behind me, Satan. Peter needed to repent. His disciples, as they're following him, as they come up to the moment of his crucifixion, they're abandoning him. They're turning their backs on him. They're saying that they didn't even know him. They're selling him out to the officials, betraying him. The disciples screwed up. And it was those same disciples that ended up carrying on his church when Jesus was died, buried, and resurrected. He, he still gave them the keys to that kingdom to say, go and make disciples of all the nations. Because repentance is allowed in God's kingdom. Because repentance is needed in God's kingdom. If it was a once you screw up, you're out kind of social club thing, then I wouldn't be up here on this stage and nobody else would be, be here because we've all messed up. But that's not how God's kingdom works. God's kingdom works like following Jesus, making him the Lord of your life, finding your salvation and your righteousness in him. And when you mess up like you will mess up, repenting coming to him, confessing your sins to him, saying, God, I don't see things the right way. Change my mind. That's what repentance means, to change the way that you think and change the way that you act, to turn around, to do it differently. We've got to have room to do that. And y'all, I'm telling you, guilt, this emotion that I'm talking about, guilt is one of those first little indicators that this needs to happen. Guilt is that first little nudge in the direction of, oh man, we've done something wrong. Oh, we need to course correct a little bit. We need to talk to somebody about this. We need to repent. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing that God's given us. Let us not turn up our nose at confession and repentance. Let us not be like the culture that we live in that is full of shame, full of condemnation. 
Let us experience the, the guilt that is that internal indicator that God's given us and let it point us into the arms of our Savior who loves us and cares for us and who is faithful and just and right to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Then guilt can be a good thing. Last thing I want to share with you, in the book of Luke chapter 5, Luke 5, 29 through 32, you get a, a pretty cool story that where Jesus kind of talks about what he was here on earth for, what he, what he came to do and what his mission is all about. In 29 it says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Tax collectors are the bad guys, by the way. They're the bad people. So uh, in verse 30, and the Pharisees, these were the the good people, the goody two-shoes. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus' mission here on this earth was not to create a religious social club of people who do things really well. He didn't, he didn't start his ministry off by printing bumper stickers that say, I don't sin a whole bunch for people to put on the back of their carriages. That wasn't his thing. That wasn't his MO. He came, and when he came, he came to find the dirty people. He came to find the mess-ups. He came to find the sinners, the tax collectors, the people who everybody in society knew, now they, they can't do anything good. What good could come out of Nazareth? What good could God do with a tax collector, a, a betrayer of his people? What good could God do? He, he came specifically for those people. He came for the sick. A doctor doesn't come to heal people that are already healed or think they're healed anyway. It's really what he was getting at because we are all messed up. And so that, that's what Jesus came here to do. And so with that in mind, we should not be surprised if we mess up, if we have something that we are feeling guilty about, if we have fallen short of the glory of God. We should not be surprised by that, and we should not allow shame to say, nobody else messes up, so you need to hide this thing. You need to blame somebody else for it. You need to run away. No, we don't need to let shame do that to us. We need to let that guilt, that indicator, point us toward the God who came to heal the sick who came to save the people who are messed up. So it's okay if you still see that you've got some messed up things in your life. And whenever we run to Jesus, whenever we go to him, we find our identity actually healed in him. Actually fixed and made right. He can cleanse us of unrighteousness. You know, in uh, I was going to share this verse earlier, but in 2 Corinthians 5, it says something really cool. Uh, it says that, that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, he made him to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Remember, shame attacks our identity. What really messed up in the fall was not just that they did a bad thing, but that a, a new identity came into being. A sin identity, a sin persona entered into humanity. And what happened in Jesus is not that, you know, I've always known and always heard that, you know, Jesus took on the sins of the world. He, he took them on his shoulders like he paid for them. But in that scripture, Paul is 
he's using identity language. There in 2 Corinthians 5, what's the actual verse? Let me see. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, I'd encourage you to go read it, but he uses identity language there. He says that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, came and he became sin. Not just he felt the sin, not just he paid for the sin, but he became sin, who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. What Jesus did on the cross was not just paying a debt. Jesus was restoring an identity that was lost in the fall. Jesus was restoring the image of God on humanity, on you and me, so that whenever we do mess up, whenever we do fall and fail, it should never make us think, I am unworthy. I am the sinner with no hope. It should cause us to say, I have been made. I have become the righteousness of God. So this thing that I've done is not what my identity tells me it is. So I need to go to the person who has fixed my identity, who has made me righteous, and I need to submit this thing to him. I need to confess, I need to repent, and I need to enjoy my new identity in Jesus Christ, that I am righteous and truly holy in him. So guilt can be a good thing. Let's let that point us to God and run from shame. Don't hide. Don't blame. Confess your sins one to another. You can pray for each other and be healed. Confess your sins to God who's faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let's run to Him. That's all I have to say. So I'm going to stop. <laughs> Y'all made me preach a little bit this morning. Uh, I have something else to say, but I don't think I should say it. So I'll just, I'll have something on the B-sides. If, uh, if you want to talk to me about white guilt, okay, we can talk about that uh, late, later on, okay, just a personal conversation. Because again, guilt is not something we should be afraid of. Shame, shame is something that we need to run away from. Shame is something that the culture is trying to distort people's identity with. Anyway, there's something to be said there, but I'm not going to say it. What I am going to do is I'm going to pray over you. I'm going to pray for us. If you would, if you could bow your heads, I, I do want to, to make an opportunity right now. Because like I said, guilt can be a good thing as it points us to Jesus. Shame is something that the enemy tries to use to distort our identity. And to be honest with you, I've said this this morning. I've said that guilt is something that can be really powerful and good in the life of a Christian because our identity has been made new in Christ. But I'll tell you something right now. If you have not made Jesus the Lord of your life, if you haven't declared him as the God of your universe, then shame actually makes a little bit of sense. Because what happens whenever you make Jesus the Lord of your life is you have a flawed identity. You, have, you are flawed. I'll just put it out that way. But whenever you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, it says that he takes a heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. This thing that Jesus did on the cross where he was made sin so that you could be made the righteousness of God, we access that identity. We access that righteousness in making Jesus the Lord of our lives. It doesn't happen in any other way. And so if you're here this morning and you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, if you've never put your faith and your trust in him if you felt guilty if you felt shame before but you didn't know how to fix the things that you've done you don't know how to fix the way that you are then i'm telling you that the only way to find that is in jesus christ it's only in making him lord god of everything 
And it's in doing so that we can actually trade in our, our sinful, flawed nature and become, in Christ, a new creation. And so if that's you this morning, if you've never made that declaration, if you've never called Jesus the Lord, would you just raise your hand? I, all I want to do is I want to lead you in prayer. Just a prayer that says that Jesus is actually Lord. Okay. So I'm thankful right now because as no hands are raised and I believe that the Holy Spirit's doing work and so if hands needed to be raised, they would be this morning. Then I'm going to just say with confidence that we're in a room right now of people who have made Jesus the Lord of their lives. And in that, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, if we put spiritual language to it, condemnation is shame. And conviction is guilt. It's okay to be convicted and for that to point us in the arms of our Savior. But there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. And so... If you've got something this morning, if you've been, if you've come into this room feeling guilty, feeling down, recognizing and realizing that you've done some things wrong, that you've messed some things up, but you're still in Christ, but you just want to confess that even in the form of a raised hand to just say, hey, I'm, I'm not going to say everything that it is right now, but I just got to say, I've been messing up, I've been doing wrong, and I want to confess and repent before the Lord right now. If that's you, would you raise your hand? And I want to pray with you. I want to point us towards the arms of our Savior right now. Thank you, Jesus. I see it. Thank you, Lord. You know the hearts of the hands that are risen. Thank you, God. Lord, we confess our sins to you. Thank you that you're just. You cleanse us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for these hands that were raised. Myself included, God, I... Lord, we, we see where we've done wrong. We see the ways that we've fallen short. And Lord, we say before you that our sin is in front of you. Our transgressions, our iniquity, they're ever before you. You know them. You see them. And Lord, we ask that you would create in us a clean heart because only you can do it. Lord, we thank you that our righteousness, our justification is in you and in you alone. We don't trust ourselves this morning, but we trust you. Thank you that you're just and right to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, would you stand with me? Give it up for the Lord. Thank you, God, for, for cleansing us. You know, in leaving, there's another psalm that David writes and that Paul quotes in the book of Romans. He says that blessed is the person whose sins are forgiven. And so I just want to say right now, as I'm looking across this church right now, I'm seeing some blessed people. You are blessed. You look very blessed because your sins are forgiven. In Jesus, the only one who's actually righteous and holy enough to do it. And so, Lord Jesus, as we move from this place, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would direct our hearts into your love and into your steadfastness as we move on from here as blessed people because our sins have been forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.